you say that it's about destroying public education. Uh, this bill, to me, is about honoring parents. I think we need to be cautious. I think this is a big jump. And I'm very, very nervous that to give choice to lots of kids, which is wonderful, you're going to be pulling vital resources from the kids that need it and the funding that needs to exist. The perennial debate over school choice is ramping up once again in several state legislatures across the country. You just heard Sarah Mackey. She's a mother of two from Johnson County, Kansas, with one child in public school and one in Catholic school. She was speaking out against school vouchers at a Kansas House K-12 Budget Committee hearing last week. And before Sarah, you heard Republican State Representative Scott Hill speaking in favor of the voucher program. Kansas is one of at least 11 states where lawmakers have introduced and in some cases passed school choice bills just this year. That's according to Edweek, an independent educational news organization. Lawmakers in Kansas are proposing education savings accounts, or ESAs. It would allow parents to use about $5,000 a year at private or home schools. This number would be adjusted for inflation. Last month, both Utah and Iowa passed similar legislation. But opponents of these voucher programs say there's insufficient oversight for how the money is used and that they divert money from public schools. Today's show is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country, including KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. Remaking America looks at the ways our democracy is working or not working for all of us. After the break, we dig into school choice programs, who they work for and who they leave behind. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us in studio is Nirvi Shah. She's an education enterprise editor at USA Today. Nirvi, welcome. Thank you for having me. Also with us from Tulane University in New Orleans is Professor Douglas Harris. He chairs the Department of Economics and he directs REACH, the National Center for Research on Education, Access, and Choice. Professor Harris, welcome. Jen, thanks for having me. So, Nivri, what's driving this recent push to expand vouchers? Some of it is still left over from the pandemic, where there was a real realization from parents that they needed choices, they wanted choices, and lawmakers are capitalizing on that. And some of it is, is frankly, just politics with Republicans wanting to claim the mantle of being the party of parents, and they're pushing this legislation to say, look, we're empowering you to find the best school and we're going to give you the money to do it. So it's a combination of a lot of different things. And it's, you know, been a lot of, found, the Republicans have found a lot of success in several states just in the last few years. So which states are we seeing the most momentum around this? It tends to be red states. That That's definitely been the wave, I would say, for the last few years, starting with 2021 or so. There's been this just big wave. But it's not exclusively uh, Republican states. And it's... Um, there's definitely Republicans in those states who are concerned about this. Oklahoma had a big fight, for example, a deep red state, one one would say, where they couldn't get this passed because rural lawmakers were conf- concerned about taking resources away from schools uh, in their areas where there aren't a lot of choices. And school districts may also be the largest employer in certain parts of the state. So they were concerned about that. Professor Harris, when we hear the term school choice, what are we really talking about? 
Well, I think the first thing is that it's, it's not really just school choice. It's a specific kind of choice, and that's choice that, that involves private schools. There are all sorts of choice programs uh, already out there over the last uh, 30 years, since the early 90s, you know, charter schools, interdistrict choice amongst public schools, homeschooling, uh, virtual schooling. These have all been you know, other kinds of, uh, of choice that have been out there. So this, is a, this, this moment is, is different. Right? This is really about uh, using taxpayer funds to send, uh, to send kids to private schools and religious schools, which is a, it opens up a different kind of debate. How many students are in public schools in the U.S. as compared to private schools? So it's about 90% in publicly funded schools, and about 7% of that is in charter schools. Uh, but, but there has been this, this gradual shift so that we're, we're now at a point where probably almost a third of students are no longer attending their neighborhood public school. Last year, Georgia was considering a bill that would have provided about $6,000 a year for students who moved from public to private school. The bill failed, but Republicans are making another pitch this legislative session. Nervi, is it typical for a voucher program to not cover the full cost of private school tuition? I think that's very typical. And one of the things that's changing in the voucher landscape is for lawmakers to say, well, let's include more middle-class families who may be able to make up that difference. This, these were often used to target low-income families, but that is typical that a, a voucher is going to get you part of the way, three-quarters of the way. It's not going to cover fees and other things that private schools may charge that public schools don't. And Professor Harris, how long have voucher programs been around? Well, it's usually traced back to about the 1950s uh, when the idea was popularized by an economist, Milton Friedman. So he was really an advocate for free markets and opposed government involvement and trying to keep government to a minimum. And he was always looking for ways to advance that. And so he got that chance with uh, the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board uh, decision in 1954 that banned legally mandated racial segregation in public schools. But the segregationists, especially in the South, were looking for some way around that. Uh, and Friedman's idea of, of private school vouchers you know, tried to, f- to fit that need. Uh, it didn't go anywhere. Uh, and then it went mostly dormant for, for many decades with just some small-scale programs. Uh, but then in the early 2000s, it really set the stage for it. Not much even happened after the early 2000s. The Supreme Court allowed it. Uh, and there was some increase in popularity at that point. But still, for another 20 years, up until 2019 or so, uh, not much changed. And, and then, I think, as Nervi said earlier, uh, you know, we had COVID that happened. And the election of President Trump was also a big uh, turning point. You know, he was looking to uh, appeal to social conservatives. Uh, he, he attacked you know, black, brown, LBGTQ uh, people, progressives, and so on. And, and uh, this was a way of, of appealing to social conservatives uh, who, who had often, you know, going back to the Brown decision, had, had been a supporter of these ideas. So you put that together with COVID, uh, and that has really created a sea change over the last few years. Well, I want to bring another voice to the conversation. Christy Williams is a Republican state representative from District 77 in South Central Kansas. She chairs the K-12 Education Budget Committee. Representative Williams, welcome to 1A. Thank you. So the education savings accounts, or ESAs, you're proposing in Kansas would allow parents to use $5,000 toward private school tuition or homeschooling. Under the bill you've proposed, how would oversight of these funds work? Well, first, I want to correct you. It's not $5,000 for private schools. Educational savings accounts can be used for a wide variety of educational resources. So it could be a micro school. It could be a home school. It could be a private school. It could be for online. It could be for college classes. It could be for therapies. It could be for tutoring. So it's really meeting the needs of kids where they are in this really challenging and changing world. 
in a way that public schools can't do exclusively. So would it ch- so, just to be clear, if someone accesses this $5,000, does that effectively remove the child from the public school system or is it something they can use in conjunction with public school? So right now in Kansas, uh, we spend approximately $20,000 per pupil, and this would be one quarter of that amount of money. In Kansas, the way we do our funding, you can take the two previous school years and take the highest enrollment to calculate how much money you will receive. So for two years, it would have a minimal effect on the school districts. And frankly, if the school districts are the favored and best option for that child and for that family, it will have no effect. But but again, if a family accesses this $5,000, is the child then not attending public school? Are they accessing education in another way? Kansas allows for part-time enrollment. We passed that last year. So for example, I could, as a parent, have my child take band and chemistry at my local high school and take a homeschool class or go to a private school. It can be a combination of the two. And again, we're trying to meet kids where they are and provide for their diverse learning needs. Not everybody can sit in a traditional public school and get the best education. And right now in Kansas, we're seeing that with our test scores and our career and college readiness outcomes. So with this wide range of options for families, the oversight question seems even more important if parents can use these funds in in so many different ways. So how will oversight work? So you can with a third party um, and in the con- and in conjunction with the state treasurer, which is a impartial agency that can uh, that will oversee um, the educational savings account. There will be one savings account for every single student, and with a third party that has access to providing, let's say, an inventory of items that a parent could choose. Those would have to be approved. Once they're approved, then those purchases can be made. I'm sorry. Can you explain what you mean by a third party? Sure. A third party vendor. So right now, what is happening even in Kansas, our governor has, um, through a bid process, selected a company that would oversee, for example, $1,000 for learning loss for students that might want additional tutoring. A third party is someone that can handle the app or the website that will allow the administration of the program from the parent. So they so that uh, those dollars can be transferred properly to qualified schools and qualified uses. Will the Kansas Department of Education be involved in the selection of that third party? No, it'll be the treasurer's department that will be the selector. It's an impartial agency, and the treasurer is the one that handles finances in Kansas, and so they'll be the one that would choose that uh, particular third party. In government, it's not really our best work for us to recreate the will. Uh, there are entities out there that are working in you know dozens of states across the United States that provide these um, digital applications that will connect parents with the uh, appropriate uh, options that they can have. Uh, Representative Williams, if there's a concern over test scores and college readiness, why not involve the experts in your state, the Department of Education, to be involved in the selection of that third party and, and to review the resources they're providing for students? Well, that certainly would be an option, but we chose an impartial option, which is our state treasurer, which we have a great deal of confidence in. Um, That's the financial branch of our uh, government here in Kansas, and that seems the most appropriate place to go. So you don't see your Department of Education in the state as being impartial? No, I actually don't. Why not? Well, 
Right now in Kansas, our State Board of Education it has 10 members that are elected, and so that that's great. We work with our Kansas Department of Education on getting data and materials, and so that relationship is, is, is sound. Um, but they do represent the public school districts, and in Kansas, we understand that our, uh, our parents and our families and our taxpayers have a broader view. And so an impartial would be someone that is not just uh, looking out for public schools, not just the system, but the students. I think we've been working far too long on um, maintaining a system instead of looking at the students. And so this is a student-centered movement. In Kansas, we all do better if all kids do better. Well, let's hear from someone in your state who's concerned about students. Here's Coffeeville Superintendent Craig Correll speaking last week at the Kansas K-12 Budget Committee hearing about the bill. Moving public school funds out of public schools decreases opportunities for the majority of students in my community and across our state. Giving public dollars to private and home schools with little to no accountability is a recipe for disaster. This has come up in other states like Georgia that are concerned about the effect of a bill like this on rural school districts like Coffeyville, Kansas, where students may not have access to private schools. What's your response, or even some of the resources, the other resources you've described, what's your response to that concern? Well, first of all, if I take Coffeyville or many of our schools in Kansas, 90% of their students are uh, not proficient at math, and about 89 are not proficient in reading. That's not okay for me to have less than 1% of, for example, our most disadvantaged students in Kansas um, in the highest category of reading math is not acceptable. So what we can't do is status quo. But for that area in particular, rural uh, Coffeeville or any rural area, you're not dependent with this money on a private school. You're dependent on parents and others that are coming together and creating micro schools or groups. Even in my own small town of less than 10,000, we have two public school teachers that are starting their own micro school, a hybrid school, and it's called Courage Academy. Why would they leave um, a public school when they're, they're very popular? They are awesome teachers. It's because they want to do something different. They want to take a more individualized approach with students. And frankly, that's why parents across this nation are choosing other options because they want individualized instruction. They want um, better uh, discipline in a better learning environment. I'm just curious, have you spoken to the superintendent in, in Coffeeville, Craig Correll? Yes. If there's a concern about students not reaching the benchmarks they need to reach, what does the superintendent say his district needs to help them achieve those goals rather than diverting money away from the schools? Well, I actually have talked to the super, superintendent, and it's not diverting away from schools. It's keeping it with the student. If you have a student in a school, whether it's Coffeeville or any other place, that is not at grade level, at what point are do they get their life back? If we look at eighth graders and then we look and we follow them to the 10th grade or we follow them from fourth grade, fifth grade, all the way up, what we find is that learning declines, their knowledge declines. And so what we want to do is, is empower parents, empower students to get the best education they need. Frankly, we shouldn't be fighting in Kansas or anywhere in this nation about how that education is offered. We should be looking at, okay, what can we do to help these kids succeed? Because I, what we're doing is not working. I, I know we only have a little bit of time with you, so I want to make sure we get back to that oversight 
question. The Ohio Department of Education recently investigated a white supremacist homeschooling network that shared racist and pro-Nazi messages. Now, Ohio doesn't approve homeschool curriculums, but what kind of oversight will there be of the curriculums or programs of schools where, where parents use these funds under your proposed bill in Kansas? So in Kansas, there will be a separate board that will overview and take a look at those qualified schools and grant them uh, approval as a qualified school. And in in regarding to speech, uh, frankly, um, the way that we overcome abhorrent speech is with better speech and with more knowledge. And so that's what I would say is that there's a difference between parental speech and state speech. That what you're speaking of is abhorrent and you and I would not approve of that. However, at the same time, um, it is incumbent upon all of us in this free society to overcome that speech with even better speech. So in just about 30 seconds, you mentioned a board that will review these programs. Who will be on that board and how will they be selected? Well, the 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 board over uh, they they provide the qualifications or they accept the qualifications for the qualified schools, and so they oversee that. They do not oversee curriculum. They do require them to have the five basics for curriculum, and that's reading and grammar and mathematics and social studies and science. Uh, individual schools have autonomy, and frankly, right now, our school districts we have none in Kansas that are not accredited. But we do have over sixty percent of our graduates from high school going on to higher learning, you know, higher education that uh, are having to take remedial work. So, so, so really briefly, yeah. because we have to we have to pause in a second. If there is a program where, in terms of the the basic academics that they have to provide, they are providing that, but there are parts of the curriculum or the program that includes some of that abhorrent speech, would Kansas still allow money to go to that program under your bill? So if you're asking me if Kansas is going to oversee hate speech, who decides what hate speech is? I would agree with you that that would be abhorrent to me and I would never teach that. But that's another entire area. We're giving empowering parents to make those decisions. And what I would say is the majority, if not all of our parents in Kansas are going to choose to teach their kids in the best possible way. And that's what I'm counting on. That's Christy Williams. She's a Republican state representative from Augusta, Kansas, and chair of the K-12 Education Budget Committee. She's sponsor of a proposed school choice bill in the state. Representative Williams, thanks for joining us. More from you and our guests in just a moment. Now let's get back to our discussion on school vouchers. Eleven state legislatures across the country from Iowa and Utah to Florida and Kansas are considering or have expanded school vouchers this year. We're talking about what that means for students and public school districts. Nervy, briefly, I just want you to touch on the accountability piece of this. We we know when public schools aren't performing, there there are measures we can look to to say students aren't learning what they need to learn. But how does that work with private schools or homeschooling or or some of these other programs like what's being proposed in Kansas? Professor Harris touched upon this a bit earlier, but it's very hard to tell. Sometimes the private schools, there are provisions where the students have to take the same standardized tests as public school students. That's probably not often the case. And for homeschooling or micro schools or other types of um, places where parents can spend these education savings accounts, it's perhaps even less Diff- it less um, hard to to or I'm sorry it's more hard to more difficult to tell how students are performing and 
maybe we won't know until if they choose to go on to college or something like that. It's very, very hard to tell what's going on with with these programs. Um, That's not to say that public schools are doing amazing work. I think there's lots of questions about why public schools are kind of treading water in a lot of places. Those, and and there's been a backslide of obviously uh, as a result of closures from the pandemic. Well, let's bring another voice into the conversation. Beth Lewis is a former public school teacher in Arizona. She's also executive director of Save Our Schools. That's a nonprofit that advocates for public education in the state. Beth, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So you were a public school teacher in Arizona for over a decade. As other states consider these programs, what are you sharing about your experience in Arizona? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's a bit sad to be reporting the realities on the ground here in Arizona. We are sort of the cautionary tale when it comes to vouchers or ESAs. Um, You know, here in Arizona, voters rejected vouchers only a few years ago, but the legislature ignored that and forced them through the last hour of the last day last year um, during the legislative session. And now as the program rolls out, you know, we're starting to see what it really looks like to have this massive cash grab um, that is proliferating out with zero to, you know, zero accountability and um, the sorts of discrimination that are popping up. And it's a it's a really sad situation here in Arizona, which can, is already 47th in the country. Can in, you give me a um, couple of specific people. examples, Beth, of what you're seeing in Arizona? Yeah. So, you know, this has been around uh, for the last five months and 35,000 new vouchers have been claimed. 80% of these voucher recipients have never attended public school. So these are folks who had already chosen private school or homeschool for um, for their kids. And so no money was ever allocated to these students. So what that means is that um, every $7,000 voucher that's claimed is a direct subtraction from the local public school. And special interests sort of shove this in, um, into the legislature saying, you know, the money follows the child. So it's not going to be a subtraction from local public schools, but we're seeing that lie played out. And um, our schools don't have any extra to give. We cannot afford these kinds of cuts. Um The other realities, we see 75% of the families using the vouchers live in upper class areas. Um, The wealthier receiving taxpayer funds to subsidize the private education that they've always been able to afford while dramatically reducing the funds available to our local public schools. You know, it's everything we said was going to happen. And here we are. Um, What do you you say to parents, even higher income parents who say, look, I pay taxes, but I don't want a public school education for my child for whatever reason. What do you say to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think first off, most families are not paying $7,000 per child into the general fund. That's just a myth that's been propped up by special interests. Um, but even if they did, I think vouchers represent like a complete dissolution of what public education means, but also public services. You know, if Can you imagine if I said I wanted to take my taxpayer dollars out of the local police and hire my own private security officer? Or, you know, I'm tired of the public library. I want my my monthly Amazon fund for new books, fire station, private highway, right? Like the examples continue, but what we're really seeing is an attack on what public services mean and really what does our democracy mean and what is America based on? 
Um, I, I think that this represents a huge dissolution of what is America. So you're only five months into the program. What, if any, concrete effects are you seeing on public schools in your state? You know, I don't think that we will see that impact until next year, just because of the way budgets are set. Um, but our budgeting committee, um, which is nonpartisan, has already said that we are $200 million short in entirely unbudgeted dollars this year, and they expect that to balloon to $400 million next school year. Um, and those funds have to be swept from our general fund, which is a direct hit to our K-12 schools. So, you know, I think we're going to start filling those hits um, very keenly. We know that there is no way that we can keep all of our local neighborhood schools open in this new reality. Um, we're going to have to close schools. And that means that not every child in our state is going to have access to a quality education in their neighborhood any longer. In, in looking at the public school system in Arizona, what do you think that system needed before this move towards school vouchers, considering, as you said, you're 47th in the country? Yes, we are in, in per-student spending. Um, and I think, you know, our teachers are just really doing more with less every single year. Um, and that means, you know, less support, fewer grown-ups on campus to do all of the jobs that need to be done. Um, we have a massive teacher exodus. So there really needed to be a concerted, you know, committed group of people who were really trying to bolster public education. Instead, we've had eight years of Governor Ducey who really set out with the Republican legislature to ameliorate our public schools, to starve them to the point where they could sell universal vouchers. And, you know, here we are. Um, we've got people buying chicken coops and home gyms and snow cone machines with public taxpayer dollars because they can buy anything they want for homeschools and microschools as long as they can download a curriculum from the internet. And our taxpayer dollars are just being thrown around <laughs> like cotton candy while our public schools starve. Now, Arizona's current Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs, has said she'd like to roll back the ESA expansion in the state. How likely do you think it is that this program can be rolled back? Yeah, I mean, I think we have, you know, political realities to work within. Obviously, there's a pretty fraught relationship with the, the governor's office and the Republican-led legislature, um, many of whom are the same people who pushed this program through last year, of course. Um, you know, I think that all of this will lie in budget negotiations. I think we are hopeful that significant changes will be made. Um, and we know that it may take a few years, but as Arizona taxpayers see, you know, the realities of this program and the way that, you know, it's being used as a complete grift, I, I think that a rollback will certainly occur. Well, if the program remains intact, what changes would you like to see to it? I mean, it's been discussed on this program, but we um, currently do not require any testing of students. So we have no way of knowing whether they are learning, um, whether they're in a homeschool, a micro school or a private school. There's zero requirement for that. Um, I'd also like to see non-discrimination measures being put in place. We had a story come out last week of um, two gay fathers who were marched off of campus at a local um, religious private school and told that even though the mother had enrolled the child, they would have never allowed the child to go there had they known that the child also had two gay fathers. 
Um, it was, you know, a divorce situation. And we have um, Charlie Kirk's Turning Point Academy is proliferating campuses with homophobic statements of faith. We have homeschools using, like, evangelical curriculum that is racist and homophobic. Like, we, we really need to put some clamps um, to make sure that this program is not being used to discriminate and to um, proliferate really horrible ideology. That's Beth Lewis. She's executive director of Save Our Schools. That's a nonprofit that advocates for public education in Arizona. Beth, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Professor Harris, how do you think the push for school vouchers in states like Arizona could lead to a permanent shift in how we think about public education in this country? Well, I think it will lead to a a permanent shift in the extent to which we have public education, not even how we think about it. You know, the, the earlier caller gave some nice examples of other public assets, public goods that, that, that we provide that, that are accessible to all. Right? This is the idea behind uh, public schooling, that these are schools that are accessible to everyone, they're free of charge, they're accountable to the public. Uh, and this is the first time I've ever seen, and I think really the first time in the history of the country where there's a significant uh, threat that that's not going to be available anymore over the long term. You know, the supporters of these programs uh, don't really give an end game here. They'll, they'll tend to talk about, well, it's a small-scale program, and we just want to give parents choices, and we want traditional public schools to exist and to, to uh, still be there, but to have some other options. Uh, but it's not clear what the end game is, because when you hear the vitriol uh, that, that we're hearing now against public schools, you really wonder whether, that's the, whether the goal is just to provide a few extra options and, and give some, some people extra choices, or whether the goal ultimately is to get rid of public schools. Friedman, you know, the one who initially proposed this, you know, he talked about wanting to get rid of them entirely. Uh, you know, what, I, don't, I don't think all the supporters uh, right now believe that, but I think they don't really realize how the steps they're taking now towards a universal voucher program might eventually lead to that. Nervi, we heard from Beth that a high percentage of families accessing the vouchers in Arizona were already in the, pub, in the private school system. Do we know if in other states a majority of students using these vouchers were already in private school? I don't know at a majority, but New Hampshire, for example, which also created a program during the pandemic, you know, the goal was that we, had, we need first responders and people who are working in jobs that cannot be done remotely. They need an option for their kids to go to school. Ultimately, like a good chunk of the first wave of kids who used the New Hampshire program were kids that were already enrolled in private school. So I don't know that the parents that maybe needed this the most, nurses, you know, uh, truck drivers, these are the, some of the examples I was given, were the parents that were taking advantage of this. There was a significant chunk of families who were already enrolled in private schools. Let's get to one more voicemail message. We got this from Alexander in Rochester, Minnesota. Property taxes, income taxes, sales taxes will go up with vouchers. People taking children out of school, public schools, putting them in their religious schools or at home or whatever increases taxes. It's a terrible idea. Alexander, thanks for that call. Professor Harris, what do we know about how or whether vouchers affect affect tax increases? Do we have any data on that? Not really, but if we go back to the spending question, uh, I think uh, part of what the advocates 
lot is actually less spending, that they're actually trying to save money uh, in the process. So it, it's actually not clear. I think there's a reasonable chance that taxes won't go up in the long term because what part of what's happening here is that students are moving from public schools to private schools. Uh, and the amount of money that's involved in these savings accounts and so on, as they call them, their, their variations of vouchers, uh, are lower than the amount that, uh, that are going to, to public schools. Now, again, if it scales up, it, it's, it's a little hard to tell. But I think generally... The, the way the caller said it, probably that's not going to happen. Uh, but it does depend on how these things go. If they, if they get a lot bigger, I think they'll have to be revamped and they'll have to rethink the funding model entirely. Nirvi, when it comes to the school choice debate, what stories will you be following most closely as we continue to see this push, especially in red states? The big thing is whether parents will actually use them. I know it sounds like Every kid in America is going to have an option to do one of these uh, programs, an ESA, a voucher, wh- whatever you want to call it. But I am, I do have a question about whether they'll actually use them. In Arizona, for example, there's more than a million kids that are eligible for this, and we have about 50,000 using them this year. Will it really balloon? And also, what will become of public school spending? I think that's a big question. What are the courts going to say? That's another big question for me. And Professor Harris, what will you be watching more, most closely? Well, I think uh, the accountability and oversight uh, piece is is uh, certainly one. The other topic that hasn't come up that I think is important is charter schools, because charter school is really the first you know, step, a big step in the direction uh, away from the traditional public school model, where providing choices to families, giving them alternatives, but maintaining oversight, maintaining accountability. Uh, and so these these two things are happening in, in parallel, and so I think it, it, you can't really separate them. And I think it's going to be a big question as to whether charter schools can maintain their support or whether they get swept up in this, and ultimately the whole system uh, ends up becoming you know, more more of a voucher debate rather than a debate about the different kinds of options we can provide in, within the tra- traditional public school system. That's Professor Douglas Harris. He's director of the National Center for Research on Education Access and Choice at Tulane University. Also with us, Nirvi Shah, Education Enterprise Editor at USA Today. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Anna Casey with help from Suzanne Perez at KMUW. Today's show is part of our Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country, including KMUW in Wichita. It's funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. 